Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight. I'm your host, David Collis. I want to shout out to my audience. Thank you for listening. You're the lifeblood of my show. Please click the follow, subscribe, or like buttons on our Nightlight Blog Talk radio page, our Nightlight YouTube channel, and my Nightlight with David Collis Facebook page. That helps me know you are listening. Plus, you'll get all of our updates. My guest tonight is Eric Munoz. He is a consultant and an agent of cultural change and was the staff planner for the city of Carlsbad in California. He is the vice president of the California Surf Museum, a board member of the Agua Hidonia Lagoon Foundation, and partner of the Palm Springs Surf Club. He also authored the children's book called Paley Can Surf and wrote an in-depth analysis about a serious environmental challenge he faced titled Calurpa Conquest, a Biological Eradication on the California Coast. Eric gave a TED Talk about the Calurpa Conquest and opened with this quote. We all see the movies, we've all seen the movies where a monster created by scientists in a laboratory escapes to wreak havoc on the outside world. But what if the monster was not some giant rampaging beast destroying a city, but just a teeny amount of seaweed with the potential to disrupt entire coastal ecosystems? This is the story of Calurpa Texasolia. Welcome to the show, Eric. We have a lot to deep dive into tonight. So, how you doing? Hello, David. I'm doing great. I'm doing really good. Thank you, and I'm I'm very happy and honored to be part of your program and and share uh, what I got to experience. So, thank you for having me. I'm very happy. Fantastic. Hey, so why don't you go ahead and give us a little shout out about the type of your your background and what you were doing, and then. Um, Kind of just touch a little, little bit upon the the Calurpa and what that is. Okay. Um, well, I, I grew up in Southern California, kind of in the South Bay, San Pedro, Palos Verdes area of, of uh, Los Angeles County, and I went to school in San Diego for college, and uh, I've uh, spent a lot of time uh, surfing in Mexico, and, and and then also got to experience a, a lot of the world through waves and through surfing, and then I got a degree in geography, 
that I was able to use to get a planning job uh, with the city of Del Mar and then later the city of Carlsbad for 18 years. I was staff planner there. And I learned a lot. I did a lot of stuff I never really knew I, I could do or would be doing as far as community work, uh, working with zoning and development, trying to make things come out good, uh, environmental review and all that stuff. And it was in that role where I was on the uh, staff of various committees because there's three lagoons in Carlsbad. There's a coastal zone. We set up trails, set up open space, and we did a lot of stuff along those lines. And in that role, I was kind of thrust into this whole little hurricane of Calerpa, the seaweed coming to our lagoon. And uh, so that's that's kind of my background. After about uh, 18 years with the city, I went on to have a private uh, planning consulting career, and I did a lot of neat stuff there as well. Um, I, I helped with the uh, desalination plan in Carlsbad, uh, some hotels, uh, the Port of San Diego. I got to do a lot of neat stuff. I set up a shuttle system and worked with a lot of visitor tourism uh, commercial uh, development down there. Um, but then I also became uh, president of the Lagoon Foundation. I was vice president of the California Surf Museum in Oceanside. And I also work with Wild Coast, which is a, an environmental uh, group out of Imperial Beach. And they do a lot of really good work in coastal Baja to preserve coastal lands from, from development. And they work with fishermen and do a lot of good work. So that kind of sums me up real quick. I have a deep love for the ocean. And I like uh, learning from other people and cultures, and that's kind of what set the stage for me to kind of have my, my, my world changed by this Calerpa situation in, in Carlsbad. Yeah, I can tell you, I, you know, I grew up at the, at the beach as well. In fact, you're from South Bay, and so am I. And so I did a lot of surfing as well. I went through junior guard. So the ocean to me is a really important experience and environment. And um, I know that later in the late 70s and the early 80s, there was a whole Heal the Bay movement and it's still going so i know how uh, important this environmental issue is but there is um just for the our viewers out there our audience tell us a little bit about this lagoon that's in carlsbad and where what the name is and uh, kind of a little bit of the history about it and then um, let's just kind of dive into what the clerpa is sounds good thank you yeah um between uh san diego city and Oceanside, North County, there's about eight different lagoons and estuaries, and it's it's a really biologically rich area. Agua Hedianda Lagoon translates to stinky waters, and that's what the Spanish missionaries doing their missionary you know effort <laughs> um, coming up the coast from San Diego um, named this lagoon because it really wasn't the lagoon that you see today. It was kind of more of a of a slough that really didn't flush out tidally, and it, and it stunk. Um, but then in the 50s, it was dredged, and it was converted to more of a man-made lagoon for the power plant because the power plant, kind of like in Morro Bay and some other places, they use the cooling uh, function of the ocean water to cool the turbines, and a power plant was built in that lagoon, and the power plant actually owns the lagoon. And that's an important point that you've probably picked up from my book is that all the other lagoons that I mentioned in San Diego County are owned by the state of California. You know, they have uh, a biological mission, but they also have funding problems. But this lagoon, because it's privately owned, is in a different little basket of ownership. And there's profit motive for the uh, lagoon to stay open and healthy by the power plant for the, the cooling of the turbines. So that kind of sets the stage for, for this lagoon. It is unique. And it's also unique in that it's the only lagoon in San Diego County 
outside of Mission Bay near San Diego where SeaWorld is, where you can actually enjoy the lagoon. You can actually touch it. You can go stand up paddling. You can go water skiing. You can go uh, sailing. You can go canoeing, kayaking. Um, so it, it is a public recreational amenity for the region, unlike the other lagoons, which are more like wildlife preserves. So the fact that you can enjoy this lagoon with active recreation is another uh, point that distinguishes this lagoon from the other ones. And and so I know on the, the ocean side, there's a slit with a jetty, so it allows the salt water in. But this lagoon goes back past the uh, five freeway and further east. And I guess there's like what there's just the geography is such that there's the natural drainage from rain comes down off of the hills. Is that correct? And then empties into that lagoon? Yes, that's correct. Technically, this is an estuary, but, you know, lagoon sounds sexier, I guess, you know. Um, but technically, yes, it's an estuary. What defines an estuary is that you have the freshwater input on the inland side that then drains to the ocean. So you're absolutely correct, David, that this has that freshwater input, and it goes from freshwater to brackish water to salt water by the time it has its mouth or its opening to the ocean. And there are three different basins that are defined between the coast and the railroad tracks the railroad tracks and the freeway, and then east of the freeway. And this Calerpa, this seaweed was found next to a storm drain on the east uh, inner, inner basin of the lagoon, and the concern was that one little centimeter would break off and through the tidal flow get out of the lagoon, basically escape the lagoon, and be in the open ocean. It could go up and down the California coast and then start taking over the reefs and doing what it's done in Australia and Monaco, and it could do it to the California coast. So this threat was not just to this lagoon. It was a very real threat to the California coast to a level that we really did not know or could not define other than knowing that threat existed. Right. And so uh, for the listener, Calerpa is a word that is actually Greek. It has its two words put together. The first word is kalos, which means stem. And the second word is erpo, which means to creep. And then there is uh, this particular type of seaweed resembles branches of a conifer. So that's in Latin, that's taxis. And um, so anyway, it's uh, Calerpa taxifolio. But this is a very interesting and unique kind of seaweed. And we have it in a natural environment, which is um, a, technically where is the natural environment where the seaweed would be found? Yeah, yeah, and there's actually a good exhibit of the natural environment on, on the three-minute animated uh, TED video that, that I, I, I worked on, and it shows up in red, and it's basically a tropical uh, plant as far as the native uh, habitat for Calerpotaxifolia. It is basically a tropical plant, and it straddles, you know, kind of the equator in the tropical areas, so, you know, the Indian Ocean, parts of the Pacific, and uh, parts of the Mediterranean, uh, not the Mediterranean, but the, um, the Atlantic and so forth, so... It's basically a tropical plant, yes. And what makes this plant, this version that was developed through selective breeding for an aquarium use is that it can last in much colder water, much more salt, saltier water, and the range for it to exist is much greater geographically. Instead of dying like at uh, 66 degrees Fahrenheit, this can live through 58 degree water. But more importantly, fish don't eat it, it puts out a toxin, and, and it grows without any control. So... The, the natural version is okay because fish eat it and it's kept in check by natural checks and balances. It's it's this aquarium strain that's the problem. So is this genetically modified or was it just 
essentially did it go through its own evolution, or how did it kind of become what it is? Yeah, so the, the hardcore scientists in the group, are really, there's a distinction between genetic modification, where you're actually, you know, changing the, the genomes of, of the, the DNA of the, the plant, in this case. Um, that was not the case here. This was more through selective breeding, and they made it hardier, and they kind of developed it over time. At the Stuttgart Zoo in Germany in the 70s, specifically for aquarium use, because what they ended up with was something that was bright green, needed zero maintenance, and it grew really fast, which is the trifecta of an aquarium where you don't want to mess with it. It grows fast and it looks beautiful. The only problem is it belongs in the aquarium. It cannot, you know, be released into the natural environment. I, I've had friends who are uh, into aquarium use. They say they would buy this plant. It would grow so fast that they would bring it in and trade it in for fish. It would basically, it basically would overtake an aquarium. So if it could overtake an aquarium with its rapid growth, this genetically uh, uh, selectively bred aquarium strain, if it can overtake an aquarium, it can also overtake a natural environment. And that is what happened and is happening. Well, it's interesting because when you think about aquariums, you might think of just small aquariums. I, I know that when I was a boy, I had one as well. I had some fish. Um, but then there's also the aquariums that you would find in San Pedro with a new aquarium there, which is a big aquarium. I mean, really big aquarium. And then there's the one in Monterey Bay. And I know that there's some other aquariums that you would associate with the, the Mediterranean, but they're big, large, industrial types of aquarium where you have lots and lots of fish. Is that what this was uh, designed for with the big aquariums or just for the small aquariums? So that's a good question. It was originally designed for large-scale aquariums, such as the Monaco National Aquarium in Monaco, which is an absolutely stunning building. It was built by uh, Prince Charles I in around the 1900s, in the early 1900s, around the same time the Panama Canal was being built. And it was basically a tribute to his love of oceanography and a, and a collection warehouse of uh, various expeditions around the world and it was a very large scale aquarium there the thing with this calerpa is that only one little centimeter it's like a little piece of paper one little centimeter can break off and start growing so the size of the hosting aquarium or the size of the aquarium whether it's a home aquarium or an institutional aquarium kind of doesn't matter if there's going to be release of calerpa into the natural environment so in mediterranean it was an institutional aquarium um but another uh, areas like in Carlsbad and like in Adelaide, South Australia, it was more of a home aquarium that was the initial infestation source. So that's kind of the background on the aquarium use, and the, the size doesn't matter. But it was originally intended for large-scale aquariums, and when it worked well there, it started being distributed throughout the world for aquaria in home and personal use. So is this uh, considered a saltwater or a freshwater or seaweed? Because it is a version of a seaweed, is that correct? Yes, yes. It, it, is, it is more of a seaweed type of algae as opposed to like an algae bloom microscopic type of algae. And this is definitely a uh, saltwater seaweed. Freshwater kills it. So the fact that the lagoon is freshwater and yet it still grew in it, what, what was going on there? The freshwater is only near the source of the freshwater input that defines it as an estuary on the eastern end. Very rapidly, uh, it goes brackish and it goes salt. The tides flush in and out based on the on the on the moon, of course. The tidal flow of its uh, you know an eight to ten foot tidal range or a smaller one, the the tides flush way back 
to where the the initial uh, input is into this estuary, and and the tidal flow goes way in there. So it goes brackish. It's it's only fresh by definition of its origin coming from uh, a, a watershed that's inland and and it's kind of fresh water. But this lagoon and this estuary washes that out really quick, and it's basically and functionally and practically, for all intents and purposes, a uh, saltwater lagoon a saltwater estuary it, it's just fresh and brackish right at the at the source but that ends really quick so how did you know so why is calerpa so invasive and it's actually considered an invasive species so maybe you can give us a little background on what that means as well so an invasive species basically means that um it's really not native to the area where it is invading. And the, the, the native plants and animals have a really tough time dealing with an invader. And the reason this is an invasive species is because this is an aquarium strain. It is not the natural strain that has tropical areas as its natural native environment. Therefore, uh, where you have this aquarium strain growing, it's an invasive species and it will grow really fast and it will smother out and basically create like a blanket of growth over the native rock reef or coral reef and the native fish and biodiversity gets displaced. That's what makes this an invasive species because the natural species does not displace natural native biodiversity. It coexists symbiotically because it's part of its native environment. You're either native or you're invasive. And this Calerpa uh, aquarium strain, definitely invasive. Okay. Uh, in your book, you write, the aquarium strain has no natural predators and secretes toxins that do not affect humans but do impact mollusk, herbivore fish, sea urchins, or submarine flora that would otherwise feed on native Calerpa and keep it in check. So um, that's a really important distinction here is that there's nothing that's keeping this in check. And none of the plants and, or any of the other uh, sea life are interested in, in touching this or dealing with it. That's absolutely correct. Um, the you know, there was actually, there was also the, something that you, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the, the toxin that it puts out um, prevents fish from eating it. The, the natural tropical native strain of Calerpa does not put out a toxin and fish nibble on it. They keep it in check and it has its own little growth distribution based on it being part of the natural native ecosystem. This puts out a toxin and it grows really fast. So it's kind of a double edged sword. Not only does it put out a toxin, it grows like hyperspeed fast. So there's not only nothing to stop it, it grows on its own super fast. So it's like a, it's like a double hit of, of, of badness. <laughs> Yeah, in fact, there was, again, in your book, you, you mentioned that there was a test that was conducted or an experiment that was conducted in which Calerpa was in, inserted into an aquarium and it was uh, an isolated sea urchin was placed in the same aquarium. And the sea urchin wouldn't even feed on the Calerpa. Instead, it's, it practically starved itself and then ate its own waste. So uh, yeah. it would rather eat its own waste than the algae. And I just... I just found that just astonishing that it would do something like that because it was just so um, averse to this type of plant. 
Exactly, and I've, I've actually seen that video, and it's stunning um, because they show the sea urchin eating other stuff, and then this thing gets dropped in, and it wants nothing to do with it. It's very visual. It's very graphic. And uh, what you described, David, yeah, that's that's kind of the power of this uh, toxin that uh, n- nothing wants to eat it. You know, none of the little critters want to want to want to nibble on it and eat it. They they'd rather starve or, or eat their own waste. And I saw another video where it, it ate plastic instead of the calerpa. So it's 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 a really incredible thing that got developed just for aquarium use. Aquariums are great, you know, but but they're not meant to mix with the natural world. It's, it's kind of a foundational lesson from all this um eric are you like is your door closed or anything because we're getting some feedback you know where there's a lot of um chatter kind of in the background or just sharp noise is there uh, any like wind no, maybe, in the background or anything? May, no maybe i was a little too close to the air conditioner sorry is this better okay yeah that's much better Okay, so here we've got a really interesting issue. So we have this Calerpa, which is doing its own thing, and we have Eric, who is on um, board with the – he's one of the city planner at the city of Carlsbad. And so something has happened in which you've become aware of environmental issues. And apparently you read two very, very important books. Can you tell us what those books were that uh, really kind of – um, launched you into thinking about um, environmental issues in a new way? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so um, when I first heard about this Calerpa situation, and, and, and you know, the city manager and the, my planning director boss, and they're all, you know, hey, Eric, like, go figure out what's going on in the lagoon. There's like a seaweed there, you know. So I started talking to the biologists and some of the people involved, and they told me about a book called Killer Algae. And is written by Dr. Alexandre Menis, and he's a French biologist, and he's probably one of the smartest people I ever met in my life. And he tried to sound the alarm in France, in Monaco, because he was a scuba diver. You know, some people fish, some people surf. Well, he was a scuba diver, and he scuba dived in front of the Monaco Aquarium for years. It was his local spot, and he started seeing this green thing right outside the outfall, and he tried to get people to say, hey, what's going on? And long story short is he wrote this whole book about a lot of people told him to go pound sand, and they didn't want to hear about it, you know, in part because Jacques Cousteau started that aquarium. He was a general manager for many years, and no one wanted to believe that there was that kind of a problem right there. And his book was very powerful. It's very, very powerful. It's almost sad that someone with so much intelligence, who's very well-spoken, with a scientific background, a calm technical case to be made ran into political issues, perception issues, funding issues, programmatic issues with coastal management. Oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. Very sobering. And I kind of realized, you know, I'm going to get a little bit of that whole reality coming my way. I could see it. I could feel it. It was a premonition that actually turned out to be true. And it was the reason I was inspired to write my story because I knew I was going to be challenged. The other book that, I also read, it's called Ocean's End, and I believe it's by Colin Woodward. And he goes around the world and he previews and he overviews all these different environmental issues, whether it's overfishing or it's the breakdown of uh, huge ocean ships on the west coast of India and the environmental issues that go down with that or radioactivity or 
all these different issues. And one of the issues that he actually covered was chlorpotaxophobia on about three pages. He actually interviewed Alexander Meniz. And I had read that book before Killer Algae, and I, I thought, wait, I remember reading something, and I, and I went through that book again, and, and sure enough, I incorporated the pages and the reference into in my book, where in Ocean's End, he ran into this, and, and that was in his discussion on invasive species, because invasive species are a very serious issue, kind of overlooked, but um, they can do a lot of damage to uh, biodiversity. So those are the two books that really kind of set the stage for me to um, feel like I had to become kind of an environmental warrior and be ready to deal with a lot of, a lot of challenges, you know, not only the so natural what, but the, the human stuff. And once you read the book and then you were looking at the lagoon, you realized you have an environmental issue here on your hand. Is that correct? Oh, I thought there's no way we'd pull it off. We're, we're screwed. We're done. That's it. You know, they couldn't pull it off in France, you know, in the Mediterranean, all these, all these amazingly smart scientists. I got to meet so many of them. You know, I, I was like stunning. I was like, like just you know, shamed in their presence. You know, I was just like a, a, a city planner guy, and you know, and they couldn't pull it off. There's no way we're gonna pull it off. I absolutely wrote it off. I thought there's no way. I'm just gonna like see this thing, you know, to its sad end, and it's good. we're gonna lose biodiversity. We're gonna lose recreation in the lagoon, and property values are gonna go down. And we're gonna look back one day and say, wow, why the heck could we not save our lagoon? We just followed the same path as the Mediterranean on a smaller scale. I was absolutely convinced of that. And what changed your mind? Uh, you know, you just got to go into it. And um, it's okay, so what it, did you, do? You, you just got to go into it. I mean, I, I, I realized that this was going to be something that was going to really change me to see the demise of this lagoon. And then I thought, well, then, you know, I'm in this fight with other people as well. And in one of the other lagoons that I was uh, staffed to, there was this guy who I actually kind of give you a little tribute to in my book. And, and he basically told everyone, look, this is the challenge of our careers. What's at stake is the whole California coastline. We're not playing around. And permit process and protocol and normal stuff, that's all out the window. We have very little time to act. We've got to act fast. We've got to act correctly. And I started being inspired by some of the people around me. And, I, and in a small part of me wanted to uh, reverse what happened in the Mediterranean. And, and, and maybe more directly to your question, David, there was a flashpoint to where when I met Alexander Meniz at a conference in San Diego, and I cover this in my book, and this was early on in, in the fight when it was not looking good, and I gave him a copy of, my, of his book to sign for me. And basically what he wrote is, um, I'm sure you guys are going to like pull it off or something like that. And I just thought, wow, this guy's been through so much, you know, denial, rejection and, and, and defeat. And for him to give me a signal of support in my book, um, I, I felt touched. I felt knighted. I felt like, you know what, let's just see this thing to the end and see what happens. So how did you, if you don't have hope, if there's no hope, then, then yeah. So, I mean, while I say I was shattered, I wasn't so shattered that I wasn't ready to, you know, roll up my sleeves and do my part because my biggest challenge that I wanted to have was convince my own city attorney, my own community, my own city manager. They, they were writing this thing off. I mean, you can't see it. How do you fight something you cannot see? It's kind of like coronavirus. You know, it's this thing floating in the air. All of a sudden people are getting sick. This is a little plant that grows on the bottom of a lagoon. You can't see it. Eric, like, what's the big deal? And I knew my challenge is to make them realize the gravity of this. And that, 
that first challenge is, I think, where I, like, set the table for me to have this elongated meal of challenges and, and ultimate success. And so what did you, how did you kind of convince them that this was actually as serious as it, it really was? I started sharing them with them the defeat of the, the scientists in the Mediterranean, you know, and, and look so what the happened Mediterranean there. Became the, example, the Mediterranean became the example of what you don't do. Exactly. I put it on a platform and I said, hey, do we have to live through this? You know, and I would tell them tragedy is the only agent of change. But once in a while, through intelligence, foresight, and vision, maybe you can let someone else live through the tragedy and you actually pull it off. So why don't we try that? And they're telling us what we can and cannot do. They said you cannot touch it. And they gave us some, some hints early on. But we have to be united with the scientific leading edge of what to do here. And so, yeah, I absolutely challenged our city leadership and the council members. And, uh, you know, it's, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a gnarly process, you know. Um, how long, but I stuck how long to it. it and I, how long did it take? Hmm. I'd say that process, maybe like a good four to eight months. I started getting you know, when, 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 when citizens started telling the council about, hey, how come I can't take my boat out? These agencies want to shut down the lagoon. There's no recreational use. By the time the wallets of the citizens started getting hit, and they started calling the council, and then all of a sudden, you know, Eric, just a happy little, you know, surfeit in the planning department, he's like the only one who really understands what's going on here. I started getting a good audience, you know, and I realized it, and I treasured it, and I valued it, and I did not mess with it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't squander it. And I said, look, the agencies are going to come next Tuesday night. They're going to ask for a million dollars, and they're going to ask to shut down the lagoon. And they're like, holy crap, there's no way. I go, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. So before you just say no to them because, oh, we don't have money, and we're not going to shut down the lagoon, we have to think of a larger solution of what we do. And that's when the, that's when the engagement and the dialogue from emotional to technical and that's when people started engaging each other that's when solutions were put on the table from concept to implementation and i was in the eye of that hurricane and for that for that i felt good and then that's when i started realizing i got to write this up one day <laughs> so how so once you kind of got people on board and they they recognized the dire situation of this what were some of the first steps that you implemented to start working through this particular problem because it seems like on the technical level you have a, a fairly large lagoon that has this fairly large amount of seaweed that you need to now eradicate. So, who got involved, and how did you get, you know, how did you get the public aware of this? What kind of campaign did you develop on a on a public relations issue? But also, like, how did you start thinking about it from the point of view of like the scientists, and then you got all these, you got an incredible coalition together. Yeah, so at this point, I have to mention SCAT, S C C A T, Southern California Calerpa Action Team. And this was led by four agencies, and each of those agencies had an absolute hero representing their agencies that formed this coalition. And then there was Merkel and Associates, the consulting biologist. And then there was the city, the power plant as the owner, the Aguadiana Lagoon Foundation, and those are the core members of this coalition. And the number one thing was before we can fight this, we have to map it. So to map it, we need to have these scuba divers that are biologists be able to map it. And it was very hard to map. This lagoon has muddy water. The clarity isn't very 
good on a lot of days out of the year. So the number one concern was the safety of the divers just to map it. And what we came up with was an interim plan where we set up the lagoon in a different zones, and there was a call-in number. And you would basically have one zone is for the biologist mapping the Calerpa, and then the other zones would be recreation, whether it was passive or active. And that's how we divided the use of the lagoon. It was very complex. The police got involved. Yeah. Some people were not cooperative. But that's how we started to work out this interactive plan with the community and the scientists to work out mapping it and then the eradication technique, which is probably another question. But this, this interactive plan was very innovative, very complex. I won a bunch of awards. And, and that's, that was the first dialogue between the community, the scientists, and, 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 and getting things to be uh, attacked in a prudent manner. You know, the power plant, since it was uh, in the mid-50s, it's, it took over the lagoon, and they had to keep track of what was going on in the lagoon. So did, were you able to kind of get into their archives to see what was going on, or how did they help? Well, they, I mean, this invasive species was really new for, for, for everyone. Um, their archives were more so along the lines of uh, when they would dredge the lagoon. Because the, near the mouth, that would need to be dredged every two to four years because the waves were bringing the sand real quick into that outer lagoon segment right near the mouth of the lagoon. The inner lagoon would only be dredged maybe every 15 years. Now, what you're asking is a very good question because that, that is what led to discovering the Calerpa. The last time the lagoon was dredged was in 1998, I believe. And the Coastal Commission and the agencies that approved that dredging made them plant eelgrass, which is the native seaweed, along the bottom of the lagoon in that inland basin. The reason that seaweed is important is because it would stabilize the scouring of the sediment on the lagoon through the high tides, so it would stabilize it from a physical standpoint, but it would also serve as the baseline nursery for the marine life, where you know the small fish and the larger fish would you know all be based around the um, this native eelgrass. They had to monitor the growth of that eelgrass over a five-year period, and it was during one of those follow-up quarterly uh, monitoring efforts for the native eelgrass that they had to plant that then the consulting biologist, Merkel & Associates, found this bright green thing obviously out of place, and then they started looking into it and realized it was this invasive species. And that's when they realized that people have been pouring their aquarium into the what the sewers or into the lagoon directly uh the first infestation was uh found right at the outfall of a sewer uh not a uh, a storm drain system i'm sorry not sewer a storm drain system and it's called hoover street and basically what they realized is someone just dumped it into the gutter and then from the gutter it went down under the street and into the outfall. And that sequence is actually part of the animation that's in my uh, animated TED video. It's called uh, Attack of the Killer Algae. And, and the graphic artist, who's a, also a surf guy from uh, Carlsbad, did a really good job. He graphically shows someone emptying their aquarium into the gutter, goes into the storm drain, and pops out in the lagoon, and then grows without control. Very graphic, but that's exactly what happened. Now, from that point, it started spreading. It started spreading. And that's why the mapping was very critical, 
and keeping it away from the ocean itself. Did it ever get towards the, the opening of that, that channel? It did. It did. It did. It got underneath the freeway and a little bit into the next basin, but then not. And so it, it, it definitely pointed in that direction, and it was very dicey. So did you set up like kind of a public relations campaign of letting people know that they're not supposed to be dumping their aquarium water out into the sidewalk or into the into the, any of the gutters? Well, we did. Now this this was the the meat of this was about 2000 to 2003, 4, 5. So you know, it was before uh you know, Instagram and 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 all the stuff, you know, that we have now. So it was a little bit more old school. But, you know, we had posters, we had newspaper articles, we had uh, interviews on TV that I was doing. Um, we set up outreach uh, workshops to the neighborhood at Kelly School, the local school right by the lagoon. Uh, and it was very well covered. There, was, there, was, there weren't a lot of people that were lost on this issue. I mean, property owners wanted their property values. Uh, you know, pro wakeboarders wanted to, to, you know, go in the lagoon. As wake, uh, as boaters wanted to use their boat slips. Uh, people didn't want to see the biodiversity go down. So there was a public campaign, and that was one of the main things that I was involved in representing the community because I had to bridge the community and then the technical scientists. So, you know, I would bring in the police for protection and law and order. I would have the city attorney give a few comments. I would explain the overview, and then the scientists would do their stuff. So it was very interactive, and there was a very robust for that time period uh, public outreach campaign. You know, now it would be all digital and Instagram and stuff like that. But for that time, yeah, we, we, we did every medium that we could. God, that is just really fascinating. Well, you know, part of the other coalition is is that you had the Regional Quality Board of San Diego and Orange County and then also the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the University of California, Davis. I mean, this is a very, very impressive coalition when you probably got everybody on board and they're all rowing in the same direction. Exactly. So when I said there was four agencies that were the core of SCAT, right, you basically listed them right there. National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, USDA, Department of uh, Agriculture, the Regional Water Quality Control Board, and California State Fish and Game. Then we had kind of uh, ancillary entities like the Coastal Commission and the uh, Power Plant and the Lagoon Foundation, and then I represented the city. But those four agencies and each of the four people that came out and represented them, in my mind, absolutely heroic. Some of the most intelligent people uh, I've ever met in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm stunned to this day. In fact, they, they inspired me to um, you know, write, write my story from my perspective. And, and what, what validated my role retroactively is when they put together a template and a program for dealing with invasive species, they basically wrote in, you need someone – you know, like Eric, you need someone from the community. You need someone from, from the city to represent the community and, and the city government because if you can't touch ground zero with the city council and the decision makers at the very local level, all the science in the world won't get you the funding or the policy support that you really need it. Unless they do an override and they say, you know what, city, you got to step out of the way. This is a national federal emergency, and we're not going to ask you if you want to shut the lagoon down or not. We're going to shut it down for you. And, and, and that's actually another flashpoint when he said, how did I gain the, the kind of respect and attention of the city? That was a very flashpoint time. And I talk about it in my book where I was asked out of the blue to go to a management meeting. The city manager wanted to talk to me. And in front of all the managers in the city, 
kind of putting me on the spot. And he said, well, Eric, what's really going on here with this Calerpa stuff? Almost, almost putting it down a little bit, trying to downplay it, kind of like saying coronavirus is going like, to go away on its own, like the seaweed's going to go away on its own, right, Eric? And I said, no, it's not. It's not going to go away on its own. And you know what? The agencies want to shut down the lagoon. They want no recreation. It's the, we're going to hurt a diver. And, and all the propellers from all these jet skis and power boats are going to make the Calerpa spread even more. And they said, well, uh, we had a city attorney review, and there's no jurisdiction for the city to be involved in shutting down the lagoon. It's either the Coast Guard or Fish and Game, you know, all these other agencies. The fingers are going in every external direction possible. And I said, I understand that, and I, I respect the work of the city attorney, who, by the way, was also a scuba diver and a friend of mine, and, and, and all those relationships, you know, bore fruit when I basically dropped my bomb, and I said, but let me tell you this. Does anyone want to be involved with the lagoon getting shut down by these other agencies? I say we go to the table, we negotiate, and we become part of that process, because if we say, like the attorney said, there's no jurisdiction, we can't have a voice of closing down the lagoon, then they will shut down the lagoon, and when we want to open it, they're going to say, oh, remember you said? You have no jurisdiction. You have no voice. So stay out of the way. We'll take care of it from here. So if we want to, if we want to be involved in opening the lagoon, we have to be involved in shutting down the lagoon. And at that moment, uh, there was literally gas from everyone. They just went, wow. And even the Samaritan said, wow, I never thought about it like that. And that was, that was for me, the biggest turning point in this whole darn thing. Yeah, you really kind of had to put a flag in the ground and, and hold your ground. Hey, Eric, uh, you were kind of going in and out quite a bit on that last passage. So uh, can you maybe just hold your phone up closer to your mouth? Or, uh, yeah, yeah, there was, sorry, there was a moment. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, you got okay. it. So there's all kinds of – I mean, now we start realizing that, okay, now we have the problem. We're going to have to go through and start dealing with – the, the solution to it. We're not going to shut this down. We don't want outside agencies, et cetera, et cetera. And yet you probably, you still need to kind of get funding. So where did the, like the money come from? And then there was also like once, once that kind of, once you got past that level of resistance and that opposition, was there more on the backside of that? Or was it more people on board recognizing that this was a really serious issue? I think more people got on board over time, David. Yeah. Um, there's always some outliers. There's always some people, uh, raising issues and not really believing in it. Again, this is not like kelp where it goes to the top and you can actually see it. So you're fighting an invisible enemy, but there's definitely more support from the community. Once we have this plan, we're okay. You can, you can, um, jet ski or you can kayak or you can, uh, take your, um, your, your jet ski, and your water ski in this part of the lagoon for these three days, but then it's going to rotate. So the fact that we worked out that recreational use plan made people appreciate the fact that, okay, they're trying to keep it open. And if we had to shut it, we reserved that right. But it never thankfully got to that point. There was a lot of updates, and the most critical update was when uh, – well, the eradication technique, and at some point, maybe I need to explain that. But, but to this question, David, yes, over time, there was a lot more support. And the newspapers were following us, the TV stations were following us, and, and there was more engagement and support, yes, between the community and the scientific effort. And, and for that, I was, I was very grateful. 
And then once that started to happen, it seems like your audience became even bigger and wider. So you actually got to meet Christopher Knight, who used to be on the Brady Bunch. Yeah, so we're we're jumping ahead just a little bit. I, I should probably explain about how we got rid of it. Oh, oh because, so, okay, go ahead. Go ahead and explain the eradication process because this is really important. Yes, it is. What the Mediterranean folks Yeah, what were your methods and what were your tools? Right. In the Mediterranean, it took them 15 years at least to realize a very foundational thing. You cannot touch it. You cannot touch it. So how do you get rid of something that from the surface you can't see it, and when you scuba dive and you're in front of it, you cannot touch it? A, a very confounding problem. And what we came up with, to the tribute of the consulting biologist, in consultation with the Mediterranean scientists, because we were in this lagoon environment, we were not in the open ocean with waves and so forth, and the Mediterranean is basically like open ocean. There's waves and wind, and it's tough out there. But we took advantage of our geography of being in a lagoon, and we mapped out the Calerpa, and we built tarps. We built tarps with PVC framing. We anchored down the edges. We went beyond the limit of each mapped colony of Calerpa, and that cut off the sunlight, which cut off the growth, which then killed the Calerpa over time. And for really thick oh. areas, we pumped chlorine underneath the tarp and it killed everything under the footprint of the tarp. It was a very radical, very, very controversial, a very, um, uh, a, 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 just a very radical and, and almost unaccepted method for people who were worried about all the critters in the ocean were pumping chlorine underneath it. And some of the leading edges and these agents were saying, we have to try everything. They tried everything, and chlorine was at the bottom of the list. It was the last thing in combination with the tarps. But once we did that and we monitored they took a sample of the, of, the, of the soil underneath one of the tarps after several months. It went to UC Davis, and you know what started happening? The native eelgrass started growing out of that soil sample. And that was the second turning point in this whole thing where we realized our tarp technique it actually might work. And in the end, it did work. So, so that was probably when it was a trial and error method. Is that correct? That was trial and error? Well, there was... There was trial and error, but then we realized there ain't nothing else for trial. So we're just going to have error or we're going to pull it off. And um, that basically became our technique. We had about maybe 70, 75 tarps throughout the lagoon. And, and what to do with the tarps at the end was another confounding agency issue. But, but that was basically our technique. And monitoring, we monitored, we monitored, we monitored. The big fear was that one seaweed was going to escape out of the lagoon and into the open ocean. But, yeah, that, that did not happen. And eventually, the, the way they declared eradication was when they could not find any Calerpa for a certain set period of time. And I, I think it was on the scale of about two years. And then they said, okay, it's eradicated. If we find it again, it's a new infestation. But they declared the lagoon a clean bill of health, and that's always eradicated. And in that celebration is when I then engaged Hollywood and, and then some of that other part that other part of the story now comes into play where where I, I got to meet another host and another range of absolutely amazing and interesting people, including my good friend Christopher Knight. Okay, I want to go back to the, the eradication process. So at the 
at the mouth of the opening as it goes to the ocean, did you have to put some sort of net in there to make sure that nothing escaped? That's a good question, but no. It it, it, it really didn't go much seaward of the freeway. So it was mainly in that far eastern basin, and that's where all the tarps were. I think there was one tarp on the other side of the freeway, but then that was it. So we were lucky to contain it and act quick enough to keep it east of the freeway. So and how was, long we was not, it? We, we did not put any kind of net or screen at the, the mouth of the of the lagoon. And, and, and in reality, it probably would have never stayed anyway. Because with the full moon and the tidal range and the gushing water I've been flowing out, it, it, I, I don't think something like that. Because a net... It, 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 a net wouldn't even work. One centimeter can go through like almost anything. So, so uh, the net would basically need to yeah. be like a, uh, you know, a, a, like a, a screen with no holes in it. And you know that yeah. that means the water would flow. It, it, yeah, it, it becomes unfeasible real fast. So when <laughs> I just think that this idea of putting the chlorine underneath each of these tarps. So what is the tarps like? You know, twenty foot squares or ten foot squares or twelve or uh, I believe they got up to like the larger ones were maybe 40 feet, 40 by 40, 50 by 50, and then smaller okay, so ones. Okay, large. Yeah, they some got large and some were smaller, and they were tailored to the size of the Calypso colony that they were meant to contain and kill. So once you put the tarps down, then you just did, what injected it, or just kind of started pouring chlorine underneath the tarp, or? No, there was like a port. There was like a hole at the top of the of the um, yeah. of the tarp, and it had kind of like a like a vacuum cleaner hose adapter, you know, connection point. And the tarps that were close to shore, they would pump it from a shoreline station. And those tarps that were out in the middle of the of the lagoon. They would pump the chlorine from uh, a boat. Now, would the chlorine start kind of filtering through the entire lagoon, or did was it? somewhat contained within underneath that um, that tarp. It was pretty much contained within the tarp. And a lot wow. of people were very happy about that. Yeah. Yeah, because no the, the edge, Yeah, yeah. That, 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 these, are, these are thick tarps, and they were anchored down with sandbags, maybe, you know, you know six, ten feet beyond the edge of the Clipper Colony, and they were um, sandbagged down as, as kind of airtight as they could be, um, and there was some incidental seepage, you know, for sure. But for the most part, the lagoon didn't fill up with chlorine. No, I mean they they were pretty right. functionally contained to the um, footprint of the tarp. Was there any other collateral damage? Oh yeah, I'm sure there was. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Any anything under there, you know, a, a, a seashell, everything a fish, a, a stingray. Yeah, everything under the footprint of the tarp would die, and that's part of the controversy of using this technique. And so, but there was, okay, no, there, there was no alternative. There, there truly so, was no other alternative. You developed this technique of the tarp and the chlorine, and it worked. Is that correct? Is that what I'm hearing? Not me personally. Our team did. The scout yeah, did. Right. That's what yeah. I mean when I say you. Kind of the whole group. Okay. So. Right. 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 As, exactly. And, and but then, as far as like having to literally um, like pick each one up or take each piece out, did you have to? do anything like by hand you know, almost like you're sewing sewing and tilling the land at all did you have to do any of that no because you didn't want to touch 
you didn't want to touch this Calerpa again. So, so once it was mapped, they made the size of the tarp frame out of PVC piping to fit the colony it was going to contain and kill. Then they put a tarp over it, and then they had uh, the chlorine pumps. Now, the chlorine was for really thick areas because the tarp itself cut off the sunlight. That in itself killed a lot of the Calerpa. But for areas where it was very thick, they needed to go in and have this additional, you know, weapon of the chlorine to just really kill the thick, thick areas of Calerpa. Wow. Okay, so once you were tarped, how long did it take for the Calerpa to die off? Well, I think that was on the scale of months where okay. it finally, like, died off, uh-huh, based on the thickness so, of how much was under there. Yeah, so no sunlight and chlorine, this seaweed was that resistant, was super resistant. It took a lot to kill it. Yeah, wow. it took a lot to kill it. And and, and those wow. are two pretty extreme things, exactly. I mean, I remember meeting scientists who are phycologists, which is, you know, the study of algae and seaweeds. <laughs> Only reason I know that word. And they were absolutely amazed and stunned at this aquarium strain and how hardy it was. I mean, one guy talked about putting it in his, his like his, his little uh, bucket in his garage. He forgot about it. it. Like months later, came and put it in seaweed, and it started growing again. Like you know, like no problem. Um, I've I've heard amazing stories of how hardy the seaweed is. It's it's almost like. And when I would go talk to school kids, I would say it's like Frankenstein. He kind of looks human, but he's kind of not. You know, and you shoot him with a gun, he just keeps walking. You know, he just it, it, that's what this was. It was it was truly like a like a monster. Like you, you opened your show with that quote. Yeah, that's a very good quote. I mean, very well written. Okay, so now that we have, I mean, so once you got ho- uh, some of the people in Hollywood involved, and you think that everything was was everything dead at that point, or was there some other um, role that they were playing? Look, everything was dead. We had formally declared it eradicated. And, and you know, when, just real quick, like when I was in the midst of this battle, I, I really put a personal challenge on my shoulders to, to tell everyone about the battle that we were in. And I'm going back just real quick, David, uh, before it was eradicated in 2006. In 2002, I went to a conference in New Zealand, the first joint conference of Australian and New, City, and New Zealand city planners. And uh, for people who know Australia and New Zealand, for the Australians and the New Zealanders to get along, it's almost a bit of a hard mission. A little bit of comedy, but there's, there's, there's a little bit more to it there as well. And this, this was the first conference where the Australian and New Zealand city planners were getting together. I was one of three American speakers to go down there, and I spoke about Calerpa because I felt like I needed to go on this pilgrimage, kind of like Alexander Menis, and say, hey, you know, you guys don't get this because, you know, we have it. And the wetlands in uh, Australia are amazing, and they're infected with it. And it's very sad. And um, Adelaide, Australia got it months after I spoke. So I, I was very um, aware of the public speaking and the community outreach that you needed to do to alert the problem to it. So when we got it eradicated, okay, now in 2006, I had left the city in 05. I was a... a private planning consultant, but I was also the president of the Lagoon Foundation, and I wanted to make sure 
that the day this was eradicated, I wanted to be kind of in the driver's seat of this important community group as president to now work with the council and all these people that were my former like bosses and so forth. Now, hey, and now I'm just like in the community, but you know what? We're going to celebrate the heck out of this. And boy, did we. You know, and I set up Lagoon Days. I had the full support of the manager, uh, city manager, the mayor, everyone. I mean, this was this was a huge, a huge thing. And, and that, I wanted to share that story. And that's how we got, you know, Hollywood involved. We did fishing events. We did uh, runs. We, we put a spotlight on this. And and I had my own little challenges just doing that. But anyway, that's that's what drove me to do the outreach on this lagoon after it was eradicated. So maybe you can kind of talk, since this is like a local issue, um, and it wasn't just that lagoon, or was it? Was there the other lagoons in Southern California also affected by this Calerpa outbreak? There was one other location in Huntington Harbor, also through an aquarium release into the local waters. This is more of a, of a yacht boating harbor basin, and it did not have a direct uh, link to the ocean. It did, but it was very uh, distant. And it had a, 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 a lot of distance to the open ocean. It wasn't a, a direct shot like our lagoon. And it was much more contained. It was smaller in scope and a much smaller area that actually had the Calerpa. But that was the second location. And they also uh, enjoyed a, an eradication success. But those are the only two in California. It's more than a local issue, obviously, because... I mean, they have it from north of Sydney down around the corner to uh, the coast of uh, New South Wales and South Australia all the way to Adelaide. Um, it's in, you know, eight, nine uh, Mediterranean countries, you know, and counting. And uh, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a local challenge and a local issue. But if it were not for the international dimension of coordination and, and uh, inspiration and seeing what happened and did not happen there, uh, we would we would have fell on our face super fast. Tell me, did you have to go through the same uh, procedure with the tarps and the, the chlorine in, in Har the Huntington Harbor? Yes, we did set up uh, some tarps and some chlorine there, and it was, it, was, it was very smaller and much smaller in scale, and they were able to keep a, a good handle on it. And they did actually have some screens between – uh, some of the waterways because it was a much more man-made environment. Um, while our lagoon was man-made in the fact that they dredged out these deep three basins, it's otherwise natural. In Huntington Harbor, it's a maze of yachts, and it's like a big marina with boats and stuff and uh, channelized uh, waterways with concrete screens between the two that, that uh, actually filtered and controlled the tidal flow for the boats that were in them. So it was, it was a much more... Uh, uh, controlled man-made environment, but nevertheless, they did have uh, they did have the Calerpa. The interesting thing with uh, the Huntington Harbor location, it, it was such a, a man-made area that it was kind of an artificial environment for uh, stingrays. It was like uh, the, the bottom was covered with you know I don't know hundreds thousands of stingrays, and and, and the divers were always like getting stung, and they, they had to deal with the stingrays there just to lay the tarps. And, and, and map the Calerpa out there. So they had like this weird kind of artificial stingray environment that, that you know, was a thorn in their side, quite literally. They laughed about it later, but, you know, stingray's no fun either. Oh, well. <laughs> okay, so 
did you once you eradicated the calerpa, did you have, did you bring back the natural seaweed and then did you also replant or repopulate the uh, lagoon with fish? No, the native yieldgrass started coming back on its own. So nature given a chance will bounce back. That's why you need to have the native biodiversity healthy and in place. And if you compromise that baseline with invasive species, it will not bounce back. In our case, it did. And then how so were you able to kind of get people, um, you know, the general population on board not to empty out their aquariums into the uh, into the sidewalks and into the gutters and into the lagoon? Is there well, a nice I, I think over I think over time, sure, people got the message. I've spoken okay. to almost every community group you can think of, from the Rotaries to the Lions, you know, to the, the League of Women Voters, uh, the Young Republicans, the Sierra Club, the Surf Rider, um, and school kids. And, uh-huh. and I tell you, the, 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 the most inspiring for me was talking to fourth graders because they would almost get bored hearing the message about don't put it in the storm drain. I mean, they got it. They were hearing it so young and so early on that 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 they got it, um, and they were kind of like, "Well, of course you don't do that." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, well, great. Well, I, I guess I don't need to go into that so much." So the whole mindset of uh, of of not having a connection between a, an aquarium and and a, the natural environment, I I think that did come out because every article in the paper would make a point of that. You know, and and they would also cite the uh, Mediterranean source. You know, the Monaco Aquarium, this large aquarium under Jacques Cousteau, let out the seaweed, and then it started spreading. So that really is a universal foundation of this whole thing. There, there's a couple of them, David, but this is definitely one of them. You have the aquarium, freshwater or saltwater. You don't put that stuff in the natural environment. I. I think in my book I, I talk about uh, different examples of invasive species, and, and there's a lake, I believe, in Colorado where a, a guy put in a handful of goldfish. And over three years, that lake had, like, you know, thousands, like tens of thousands of goldfish that overtook that environment. There's no trout. There's no native fish. Uh, the native uh, no grasses went away. Um, so it, it really is an important you know, message to, you know, don't, you know, saltwater, freshwater, or anywhere else. You have something in your aquarium, you don't release it. Um, and now there's, there's some cultures that have a ceremonial release, and they have the stonefish in, in, in the Chesapeake Bay that had some, you know, um, I think some Asian roots as far as the, the cultural release of the stonefish. And this is a fish that can almost walk on land, it like flops, and it, it'll like cross the road and go into another area. I've seen videos wow. of it. it. It's absolutely stunning. It's like, are, you know, are you kidding me, you know? And then there's the Asian carp in the Mississippi River system that was uh, grown in a fish farm, and the fish bit a hole in the, the, the netting, and then they, like, escape, and now they're up, and they're threatening the Great Lakes. So the Great Lakes are under threat from an Asian carp that got released from some Mississippi uh, River uh, fish farm in the southern reach, and it's, it's absolutely stunning the reach of these invasive species, how far they can go. A science fiction writer cannot come up with the reality of what's going on in some of these situations. It's, it's just it's just absolutely 
true and stunning, but sobering and sad. And you just, there's, 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 there's kind of no end to it. I mean, Captain Cook brought rats to the Polynesian islands and it hasn't stopped since. But with our vectors of transportation being so rapid and so modern, this world shrunk and the invasive species are along for the ride. It's very, very serious. Yeah, so and this is a really serious issue because it's a global problem, and it's not just chlorpha, as you were saying. It's other other types of species like, uh, you know, fish. I know here in uh, Arizona we have a, a buffalo grass that was brought in to stabilize the, the, the soil, and it turned out that this is a very wild type of um, plant, and it's uh, prone to um, fires. And so when the fires come, it just burns it up really quickly so and we've been having a serious problems up here in the catalina mountains right now with uh, a, uh, a fire that has been raging for five weeks it's now kind of yeah, under, no, ex- it's under, you know they finally got a, a handle on it but it took a long time for it to finally get to that point but i you know there's there's a, a lot of issues when it comes to environmental issues and it's not just you know the calerpa issue but you know you're really kind of touching upon a much bigger issue of what we need to be doing as a species to start curbing some of um, our excesses. Well, exactly. And, and, and at this point, I, I, I have to quote something that was very profoundly said to me um, by my good friend Christopher Knight, you know, Peter Brady. And he says, we are the invasive species. We're the ones that are going to wipe out our own home and our own planet by all the silliness that we're doing of playing a chess game with biodiversity and p- putting things where they do not belong, creating things, genetic mutations, uh, biogenetics, this and that, you know, tomatoes that come out of a test tube, who knows where it's going to end and, 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 and what the stop and the starting point are. And, and, and we are the species that are at, at peril for ourselves. We are our own enemy in that sense. And that's, that's a tough message to communicate because there's some good, you know, with medicine, cutting edge, you know, science and all that stuff. But, when you come to the biological reality of life and you start playing with that, um, that, that can get very risky. And, and, and sometimes it doesn't turn out good. A lot of times it doesn't turn out good. I mean, we, this was just developed for an aquarium use, just to have an aquarium look pretty with no maintenance. And right. it's absolutely messing up, you know, coastal areas. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a cousin to, I liked your overview up front about Calerpa, the Greek origin, and Taxifolia. Well, there's another one, uh, Calerpa racemosa, and it's basically like a, uh, a grape-like morphology or shape to the Calerpa. And what the scientists in the Mediterranean taught me, when I went there as the research for my books, I went to Ground Zero. I went to Monaco. I, I went to France. It was, it was life-changing. I also got a chance, by the way, to, to go to, uh, to Italy. And I, I, I went stand-up paddling through the canals of Venice for a week, and it was, it was stunning. And, uh, and I got to surf in Sardinia, and it, it just expanded my whole world because of, I was just following this calerpa. And, and it led me to all these other different things that enriched my life as just a, an ocean person or a surfing person, you know. But the point here is that the scientists are saying, hey, calerpa taxifolia, that's like, that's like the Hollywood, you know, version. That's like the real popular one. But... Racemosa is more dangerous, is doing more damage, and nobody even knows about it. So there I was, 
you know, at the Mediterranean Institute of Oceanography in Marseille, France, overlooking this stunningly beautiful area, realizing that what I've been chasing really isn't like, quote, the problem. Its cousin is the real problem. And it's moving around through ballast water exchange and all these different ports. And it grows um, asexually, so it can grow way more rapid, much further reach than just the fragmentation of Calerpa. Because the fragmentation is limited to where it can flow through currents. This other method just explodes with growth and has a much wider area of impact, infestation, and distribution. And they're going, we don't know how to get anyone interested in this because it's not taxifolia. This is just racemosa. No one wants to hear about it, but its damage is far greater to the environment. So, I was, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was trying to shoot down, a, I was trying to find an AK-47, and, and these guys were saying, no, this is like a nuclear bomb, and this is the real damage. This is the real weapon of damage. I just, I, 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 all, I all I could do was, was give a mention in my book, you know, and, and because uh, it, it almost took me out at the knees. I know that when I was, um, the, I think in the back of your book, you have a, a map of the Mediterranean and dots where this particular Calerpa is. And I was just shocked at just the proliferation. It is on both the African coast, it is on the European coast, and it's as far east as Cyprus. So uh, how are the... Okay, so what are some of the things that are going on with the, the Mediterranean and those countries, and how are they trying to eradicate this species? Well, and there's a number of you. you know there's a number of there's a number of uh, obstacles that they're facing, which is you have the whole the immigration issues, you have the terrorist issues, and all of these are starting to impact the amount of resources that they have to be able to fight this other type of you know problem. Exactly, exactly, and, I, and, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because in our case here in California, we had a very linear path of just trying to get rid of it. We had huge funding issues and, and other issues and so forth, but we didn't have waves of immigrants coming across the Pacific Ocean, you know, like from Catalina Island or from uh, uh, you know other locations and, and literally invading our shores through a humanitarian crisis of these people needed help. I mean, these are human lives. So this is, you know, way more important than just, you know, the environment. This is, these were people that were fleeing, you know, their own civil wars, their own uh, persecution for their, their way of life. And, and back then you don't hear about it so much anymore, but when I was 2015, 16, 17, the, the immigrant issue was absolutely challenging all of the government agencies, all of the funding and when you go through those agencies and the funding, you know, ocean resource protection, uh, okay, you might be on the list, but you're like, you know, number 17 out of the top five. And terrorism, the terrorism, this, I mean, um, the, 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 the Paris bombings, okay, took out a good friend of uh, one of the scientists I met with in Marseille. The Nice bombings, that literally happened months after I walked on that, on that boardwalk. Um, the reality of what they have to deal with to have a safe street, a safe community, or a safe country, whether it's the challenge of immigrants or uh, the violence of terrorism, which is such a, a sad thing. You know, I mean, every every religion in my mind is good. I've I've been to to Indonesia and the, the Muslim religion. It's, it's it's amazing. It's enchanting. It's wonderful. But every religion, every single religion, 
has a radical component that, you know, spoils it for the masses. And this, the, the radical terrorism stuff that was going on when I was writing my book, when these scientists were telling me, Eric, you know how hard it is to get funding when you have terrorism? You've got people getting blown up at the cafes when you have waves of immigrants coming. So they are extremely challenged. And that's why all the intelligence in the world, all the best science in the world, all the money in the world, if you don't have the funding, the policy, and the science working all three in unison, there, there is no chance. But if you don't have a healthy environment, you don't have you know, healthy mountains, oceans, rivers, and oceans, and what's the platform for people to live? It can't just be concrete in a roof and an underground bunker, you know? Exactly. So, we, we, you know, that's, that's, that's the whole problem right there. There has to be environmental so, stewardship. Is the, are the Mediterranean countries, are they able to kind of get a, a handle on any of these, these invasive species? Or is it just now running rampant to the point where there's really no, no return? The scientists are absolutely scratching their head. And then they're also trying to convince a lot of their, um, their agencies and, and their government and their political leaders that global climate change is actually happening. They're saying, Eric, we've mapped it. It's, it's, it's a reality. The oceans are warming. The things are changing. The biodiversity is moving around. You know, and, and so they're, they're trying to fight for validation of something like global climate change. And then these invasive species, it's just it's not as sexy or as big as a sounding as, as something like that. And so, no, they are definitely losing the battle. I mean, I, I say somewhere in there that the Mediterranean is, is like the cradle of ancient civilization. That's a very modern problem with invasive species. And no. Flat out, they're basically losing. There's over 500 marine invasive species in the Mediterranean Sea alone. And all they can really do, all they're really doing is where it does not exist, these invasive species, or at least some of them, like the Calerpa or whatever, they're setting up sanctuaries. And then how do they protect the sanctuary? And how do they have protocols and policies and funding and education and outreach and, and maybe some structures, but you know, even that's hard to secure a sanctuary. So all they're really left with, they're kind of riding a lot of areas off, and there's few little jewels, few little sanctuary areas, and okay, well, here we don't have it. But that's the minority. The world is getting remapped. That's why the chapter on my book is The World According to Invasive Species. It's kind of sad, actually. That's, that's why I that's wanted to really put a spotlight on our, our little victory here in Carlsbad. Right. I mean, that's the shining light, and yet it was manageable because of the size. But when you start dealing with some uh, the scale of the Mediterranean Sea, we're dealing with you know magnitudes of millions, right? We we were blessed with uh, geography of the location, being in a lagoon, uh, not being subject to waste. So we were we were lucky with geography. We were lucky with the example of the the. the the failure, the missed opportunity of the Mediterranean, because they could have done stuff, but they flat out did not because of the political uh, elements outweighing the scientific elements. Flat out, read Killer Algae. Very sobering, very real story written by a super smart guy. And the third thing we had for us was, was our response. For some weird cosmic reason and the confluence of opportunities, led this reality is is we capitalized on our geography we implemented the benefits of the lessons learned or lost from the Mediterranean 
And we were basically put on a pedestal by all these other scientists. I mean, there's an international conference I talk about in my book when I first met Dr. Alexander Minis. And there are scientists, like I was saying, from, from France, from Italy, from Croatia, from all the Mediterranean countries, from uh, New Zealand, from uh, uh, Japan, from Australia, from Brazil, right? And they basically put us on a pedestal and said, we want you guys to pull it off. We think if anyone can, you guys, you guys might actually be able to pull it off. You guys might be able to do it. And, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of my story. And that, that's what we did. But we had geography. We had the Mediterranean as a template. And we had our response, which was rapid and scientifically based. And somehow it got funded and supported. And you put together a very constructive action plan. So, you know, there's a lot of things that were working in your favor. And you made quick, decisive actions. And, and decisions, and I think yeah, obviously that, and that's kind of the basis of almost everything. You have to have some wisdom, and look at a situation and go, and if this continues, it's going to get it's going to get way out of proportion, and we, at that point, it's going to be really difficult to deal with it. In fact, you even mentioned, I think in your book or in us talking, that you know if you when you have an environmental problem and it reaches an, a, an economic impact on your society, then at some point you have, you're, you're too far gone and it's too late to help resolve a problem. And that was a very Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I did come up with a little phrase for that, you know, that by the time there's an economic impact, there is no environmental solution. And, and I would kind of like repeat that to the decision makers, to everyone else. You know, don't don't let it get to that point. Um, you know, in my book, I cite a bunch of examples in Australia where, like, $500 million fishing industries were impacted because Calerpa spread, and it, and it affected their, their, their commercial uh, fishing stock, you know. And, and what can they do now? They, it's, it's, it's moved offshore, or it's not the same, or there's a dislocation. There's a, there's a missed opportunity, and you cannot – go back to square one sometimes and, and, and go back up and, and rebuild, you know? And, exactly. and so, yeah, that's, it's, it's very sad. These, these estuaries well, you know, that I went and visited in, in 2008 in Australia, south of Sydney. Someone wants to take a good trip. I go three hours south of Sydney and it's the most amazing wetlands and, and, and there's kangaroos hopping around. There's koala bears in the tree. Oh, but now they have Calerpa in the wetlands and some of the most prolific fishing grounds. And these wetlands are so beautiful and and there's no biodiversity like there once was because Calerpa came, it spread, and it's kind of messed up. So now they just like you can't do this, you can't do that, you know. It, 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 you know, and it, that's, it, that's it's, on the invasive species side. I mean, you think about uh, the BP oil spill and what happened in the Gulf of Mexico and what they had to do there. And I know that I have friends from Louisiana, and they just said the fishing industry was just devastated. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. There's, there's so many environmental issues, you know, like 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 um right, like like oil spills, you know, or the radioactivity in the water, uh, or plastics. I mean, we we you could do a whole program just on the plastics and stuff, you know. Um, yeah. Doctor Minis, Doctor Minis, he told me, he told me, look, plastics are very bad, but invasive species, they're, uh, it's much worse. But he says it, they're almost not even worth mentioning in the same sentence. The impact of invasive species on natural environment is, is kind of overlooked. It's not become accepted, but people are just numb to it because, well, what are you going to do? 
You know, you can't go back and like regrow this or regrow that. The baseline is too far removed from reality. It is out of reach. It can never come back. Um, and so that's that's why there's so few success stories with invasive species, and even fewer in the ocean marine environment. That I just had to, I just, I just had to had to put all this together. You know, I've I felt compelled. I, I was it was a weird inner drive within me to, to just to tell my story because I felt like from the from the technical science community to the emotional, you know, community living around it, the global reach with the local application. I was in the eye of this hurricane, and uh, yeah, it, it, I, yeah, it, you know, it, it just it just did something to me. And I I would say to my friends, and I, I would actually say to a couple. Uh, public speaking audiences, I, I guess this one right now, with everyone listening on the radio or the podcast and stuff, you know, Calerpa, it not just affected the Mediterranean and Australia and our lagoon, you know, it affected me. It infected me. It got inside me. It changed me. It opened my eyes. It opened up a lot inside of me. It opened my yeah, world, too. How did that, how did this, how did this experience kind of go through and reshape your, your way of thinking and re, re- calibrate your worldview um on one hand it reaffirmed a lot of things that i already knew that the world is very connected all humans regardless of culture are the same you're going to deal with human nature regardless of what someone believes or does or works at or their language or the what tongue they speak in and stuff humans are humans that's universal and the world is very connected but this really reaffirmed that for me in a lot of ways but i think the way it changed me is that it made me look at loss of of a way of life or loss of an environment in a real sensitive manner because I I literally like I literally like cried for this lagoon. I, I was interviewed by the San Diego reader and I, I, I said that and that was like the quote of the article, you know, I wept for the lagoon. So I, if you look up I wept for the lagoon, I I think like it pops up online. So I told the guy, yeah, you know, I, I like cry and this was even before stand up paddling. I was just kayaking. I'm mainly into surfing. I, I almost to be honest, I almost actually get like a little bored in the flat water of the lagoon. But, you know, I enjoy it. I like it. I'm trying to be open minded and not just be you know, just freaked on waves all the time. So in my version of being an open mind and, and I thought we're going to lose kayaking and they're going to lose jet skiing and they're going to lose uh, wakeboarding and, 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 and all this stuff. And the lagoon's going to get shut down. And just what a, what a shame, you know, and that, that like I had like an emotional hit on that, you know, but then to, to, to turn the boat around and actually like be part of a larger story where we pulled it off. Oh, that's, I mean, that's empowerment. I mean, that's, that, that, that was just like, an external source of inspiration that's affected me internally for sure, you know, and, and, and when I talk to people and I wrote the book, you know, it's, it, it's a gnarly story, but for us, we had a positive ending and things don't always turn out good, but for us it did, you know, you, you don't, if you just hear bad news all the time, you don't celebrate the good stuff, you know? So that's, that's what right. it taught me. The, you know, the, the, the world is connected. Human nature is the same and, and you, you've got to celebrate the victories, no matter how small or how large, because, they can multiply and they can grow on each other. And the, the world can't just be negative and, and, and dismal and, and, and a loss and defeat all the time. That You may as well go live in a concrete and an underground bunker at that point, you know? Just hunker down and wait for something. 
Well, you yeah, know, you no, did something you, you, really remarkable. I mean, I, I just really have to, you know, take my hat off to you and just salute you for the work that your you and your team did to to deal with this. But at the same time, you know, you you decided to take another action plan and write your book. So, how did you map out your book? And I, since I'm a writer uh-huh. too, I know what it takes to start thinking about what the mechanics are of of writing a book, and. Uh, I know how difficult it is to write a book, and you wrote a very well-written book, and it's very exciting, and it's very informative. Um, how long did it take, and, you know, how many hours would you put in a day, or when and when would you do it? Wow. Well, that's, I, 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 actually, I really appreciate that question, and I, and I have a really good answer for it. In general terms, I'd say the whole book took me maybe, like, maybe six years to write, um, and I started realizing that I need to capture – this other milestone, this other thing that's still going to happen. And then towards the end, I realized, you know what? I have to make my pilgrimage to uh, Monaco. I have to go to Ground Zero myself and to France. I have to reconnect with Dr. Minis. And I have to I have to add that level. Because I'd already been to, you know, Australia and New Zealand and all that stuff. And, and I spoke in Washington, D.C. I've been up and down California. And, and But I, but I, I this book is, my story's not complete unless I go to Ground Zero. I had to make my own you know, trip to Mecca, to my own pilgrimage to, to Monaco. And, and, and I knew I needed to get the book out before the 10-year mark or concurrent with the 10 years anniversary of it being declared eradicated. It was declared eradicated July 12, 2006. And I knew if I wait more than 10 years to tell my story, which is going to go back 15 years, then I blew it. And so that was my, that was my end point. And it actually got published, you know, in uh, in spring, I believe, of 2016. And so for the 10-year mark of the Calerpa eradication, I did a lot of stuff in the community and all that stuff, and I, I was very happy with that. Now, the mechanics of writing the book, that's a great question, and, and, and this might actually help other people or can have a similar endeavor up their sleeve. When I was on city staff, starting in, in 2000 and, 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 and the history of it, I had in my mind somehow, somehow in my, in, my, in my own, you know, dumb way, I was realizing that I need to save every city action that I do to council, every newspaper article, and I'm going to save them by year. And then I'm going to come back someday, and I think I'm going to write a book about it. I'm going to write my story. But, yeah, you know, everyone talks about that. And I, okay, fine. But I did that, and I had folders of all this stuff, and this isn't digital. This was like, you know, pre-internet. Now you look it up online, all that stuff. This is, I mean, cutting out papers, saving uh, articles, all these different things. Uh, my agenda bills to city council, all the, all the city planning maneuvers. And I had them year by year. I actually have them labeled, 2000, all this all the way up. And, and, and then one day I said, I'm going to put them in order. So I went January to December. And then I started, like, writing it up, writing it. I wrote this and that. I, and here's my chapters, and I did my, my table of contents, and here's all the chapters. And I had my book outlined in chapter form. I had the hardcore data year by year. And then once I started writing parts, then I would put it down. I'd, I'd have my life. Things got in the way, this and that. But I would read what I wrote sometimes months prior, and I'd go, wow, I wrote that. Well, you know, yeah, you know i got to finish it. i got to keep it going. I didn't even feel like I wrote it. They didn't I tried to write it so it would be timeless, and I would not be bored at a future date to read what I wrote months prior, if that makes sense. I tried to almost, yeah. you know, 
future proof it, if you will, with with the style and, and my storyline, so that it would always seem fresh every time I read it. And when I would read the little pieces that I wrote that I wrote prior, that like inspired myself to do it. But then realized I needed to go to Monaco, and I, I just you know, I, and I I went to Hyperdrive, and I went on that trip in 2015. And then I said I I got to finish it by the you know by fall and then I went into like the production mode with a agent and so forth. So that's that's a, kind of a long answer as to how I mechanically wrote it and laid it out. But it started by me saving everything year by year, which I actually look back and I I almost kind of can't believe I pulled that off and thought about it and actually did it. And and a lot so of those things you, are actually in my book. Yeah, when you started to look at all of the information that you gathered. You must have said kind of in your mind, wow, look at all this information. I mean, it's not just my experience anymore. I mean, there is an enormous amount of information out there, and I'm sifting through it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm recognizing the importance of it all. You know, so then at some point you have to start putting it all in categories and subcategories and, you know, shaping it that way. At least that's what I would imagine. No, totally. And the only thing that saved me was taking a chronological approach. That's why my book yeah. is divided up by years. And I gave every chapter a, a year or a range of years with the title of what happened in that year. And then, and then I'm, I'm, for some reason, you know, thanks to my parents or some, I'm, I'm blessed with a good memory. And, and I was able to recall a lot of stuff, how I felt, what I said, my little maneuvers, my humor, or my lesson, or my, or my challenge, and all that stuff. And, 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 then, and, then, and then for some reason, I, I, I don't have a writer's block. So I was able to to throw it out and I'd put it on paper, then I'd refine it and I'd, I'd labor over the word choice and the sentence structure, but the message was real clear and actually easy for me to put. And it was the chronological approach that saved me starting in 1998 all the way to 2015. Yeah. It's really important to have like an armature to put everything on and knowing how it all flows. Yeah. Yeah. But, but and like you're saying, I started real, no one has all of this, different type of information than I have. The newspapers have this, the city records have that, the scientists have this, but no one had a little bit of everything the way I did because no one was in the eye of the hurricane the way I was. From city staff, community, the science people, and then president of the Lagoon Foundation, and then on my own little personal mission to go like kind of, you know, kind of, you know, not around the world, but, you know, definitely foreign conferences, Washington, all that stuff. No one, no one, no one had all those different non-connected on the surface pieces that I had and, and no one had all those references and all, so I wanted to make my book like a, a one-stop shop where if I lose all my files I have my book this book I don't need anything more than my book now to tell the story and all these you know oversized files that I had before it's all contained in this nice tight, tight little book now my story my is also reference uh, style uh, warehouse of information on this and, and I, I, I loaded up everything I, that I did that I could think of and that I would want in there. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of I still can't believe I, I did it sometimes, you know, just like to be honest on well, a little I know human level. I know, what it means. I know what it means to write a book, and it's a, it's a feat, you know, because you, you pour all your heart and soul into it, and it, it represents who you are and what you're thinking. So when did you end up writing the uh, Pelican Surf book? Oh man, so I think I did that just in the last year or so. Um, I, 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 I've, I've seen more dolphins and pelicans and 
I can never count in my life. And I, I don't know. I just somehow the storyline came into my head about uh, a pelican. You know, when they when they fly over the waves, they're always over the swell. And yeah. you know, as a surfer, you always fantasize a lot of silly things. And I go, wow, you know, what if the pelican like actually got barreled? What if the pelican like, mm-hmm. you know, got like in the tube and came out? You know, I mean, why not, right? Well, um, in a funny way, when and, you watch them, they actually do surf those waves. They, they do surf the waves. They then and and they, they kind of like ride the swell, and they absolutely yes, like they ride the waves. They do. They. And they, they right, they ride the waves, and then when it starts to break, they go up and they go to the wave behind it, and it's an That's absolutely right. mesmerizing thing. But I, in my mind, I took it further to where okay, now they're like actually like technically and truly like riding inside the tube. And I thought, well, how's the pelican going to do that? Well, when surfers get in the tube, a lot of times they'll stick their hand in the wave, they'll slow their yeah. board down, and they'll let yeah. the wave pass them up, and then they'll release and they will come out of the tube. So. In, in my storyline, I have this cute little pelican girl who's born with a left wing that's all tweaked and it's all bent weird. She doesn't know it's weird, but everyone else laughs at her because she looks weird with her wing. So she has to go and fly alone during the day. And one day she sees the surfers using their arms to slow down and get inside the barrel. She goes, I can use my messed up wing, the wing that's bent, I can use it to slow down and get barreled, and so she becomes a tube rider, and she goes back to her local beach, and when the waves are huge, no one else wants to surf, and she goes out at her local beach, and she puts on a tube riding display and becomes a community leader, survive the bullying, and then everyone else bends their wings when the pelicans fly in, fly in formation. They put her in front, and all the other pelicans bend their wing in her honor, and I want her to go as a storyline since she goes and surfs with dolphins and then with whales, and I want her to be like an environmental warrior for kids to realize that you need to take care of the oceans, you need to take care of the world, and the animals yeah. can help you do that. And my 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 character, Pelly, I see Pelly. I just took Pelican and broke it up from Pelican. Pelly's her name. Pelly can surf, and that's how I came up with the name of the book and the character. But I I would love if someone wants to help me sell this to Disney or something. I mean, I, should that be great? I mean, I I would love her to be like an environmental. Uh, child empowerment type of character to overcome bullying, overcome your personal challenges, and actually turn it into something beautiful and unique. And that's my Pelican surf uh, story, which is which is also on Amazon next to my my book. I guess the one we're talking about now. It's an enduring yeah. type of a story, you know. It's an enduring t- uh, story. So you're also and and, and, and the and the lady who drew it is an amazing yeah. artist. She took what was in my head through our discussions. And she more than exceeded what I had in my mind of what Pelly would look like and what all everything I described. What she drew in my mind, the, the artistry and the illustrations outdo my story. Easy. They work in combination, of course. But her talent is amazing. Her name's Bonnie Bright and uh she's actually out of New York now and she's an amazing artist. And what she did, she's we're we are ready to write the four next stories of Pelly. We just, we just, you know, it's, it's, it's just sitting there online now. But she would be a powerful character, and and it, it, it would just be amazing. You know, there's TED talks at the end of my at the end of my five story program that I have for Pelly. She starts Shred Talks, and Shred is an acronym, and Shred stands for Showing Humans Responsible Environmental Decisions. 
and that's what Pelly brings to the world. She brings the humans and the animal world, you know, to, to look at look at invasive species, the oil spills, the plastics, and she puts a lighthearted but impactful, inspirational character viewpoint for all these issues, and she can go around the world and enjoy and surf beautiful ways at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean this is a this is a very important story about the nature of stewardship. Exactly, exactly. You know, and she can cover, you know, the pulling, the the the, the social, you know, uh, community aspect all the way to the environmental issues. Yeah, and um, yeah, and well, you I, know, all the kids in my neighborhood, they they all they they look at Kelly, they you know, it's it's she's enduring. I have I have some friends who are already. I have friends who are already designing, you know, the, the keychains and the hats and the stuffed animals, but uh, I, I would love to launch, you know, probably as a character. <laughs> it's all merchandise. Good for you. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have so, a team working on that you know, right now. Obviously, you know, uh, surfing and the ocean are very important to you, and, you know, I find that the ocean is very magical. But you, you are the vice president of the Oceanside Surf Museum, so – I've been there. Um, I think it's a beautiful uh, museum there in tucked in, tucked into um, Oceanside, downtown Oceanside. And you have like the whole history of surfing and you have all the boards to show it. And the, the, the exhibition that I saw was surfing at, in Vietnam during the Vietnam war at Da Nang. Yeah, that was one of the most powerful an emotionally warning exhibit that we had. It's actually the California Surf Museum located in Oceanside, right? And you can look at uh, surfmuseum.org. And, uh, yeah, that Vietnam exhibit, we, we, we literally had guys who had surfed in Vietnam, been to Vietnam, and they said, you know, no one ever said thanks to us when we came back. Everyone just wanted to give us crap, you know, for that whole war situation. And, and, and people were, were moved by that exhibit like I've never seen before. Um, but our yeah, museum is just, kind of a good. tribute to them. Yeah, so it was more of a tribute to uh, the veterans of Vietnam. Exactly. 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 And kind of showing how for their sanity, they had this surfing element, you know. You know, I, I, I know surfing and surfers, you know, guys and girls, all of us you do it, you know. It's, you know um, but, but it's a good thing, too, you know. And if we can, we can spread the joy of water and surfing around, you know, that, that's not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing. And, 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 and like right now, for example, I'm working with a partnership of surfers. We bought the Wet and Wild Water Park in uh, Palm Springs, and we're going to bring uh, surfing to Palm Springs in the Coachella Valley right now. That's, that's kind of like the new chapter of my life right now where uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. All my experience, so the community work, all that stuff we have out here in the Coachella Valley. You know, with with indigenous Indian and Mexican kids, and people kind of overlook them, and and we're showing them a lot of love and attention. Um, they're starting surf clubs in high schools now, you know, out here, and there's there's cultural change that's going on. Our our wave is still being tested. Um, we're using some of the, the the newest technology in the world. You can look it up look it up online on the Palm Springs Surf Club on YouTube, and there's a bunch of clips from a bunch of pro guys. But we also yeah. have the ability to make smaller waves. We brought kids from Watts out two weeks ago, little kids where the parents have challenging, tough lives. And these are the innocent kids in the eight to 12 year old range. Half of them couldn't even swim. And when they saw these waves coming, they, they changed their lives in a good way. We showed them the joy of, of riding water and being wet and being happy. That's, 
Nothing well, wrong with that. You know, there's something, you know, when I grew up and you grew up, you you had to go surf out there in the the wild blue ocean here, you know, with with the storm surfs and hurricane surfs and the big waves, the small waves. And, you know, it was, um, I kind of look back on it and go, boy, that was, in a sense, that was really dangerous. And so in one <laughs> regard, you know, especially when you get into big surf and you get into the undertoes and you get into uh, having to learn how to manage yourself in, in waves that are breaking in front of you and you're not even, you know, you're paddling out. Um, you know, so you have to kind of learn how to do all that. And one of the things that's kind of fascinating with the um, the Palm um, the Palm Springs Surf Club is that you don't have to go through and deal with all that danger. You seem to be just able to go right to a spot, almost like a uh, a reef break, where you can just kind of paddle into the wave from the side versus having to go out, you know, through all the waves in the front. So it's well, not you're as, absolutely it's right. Not as, you know, you, it's not as it's not as dangerous and it's not as threatening. You know, I have been out. Um, you know, my brother and I, we got to go into Ocean Surf Camp Pendleton, and it was a big day that day. We got to go on on the base, and there were a lot of Marines that had no business being out there in the surf. And I just <laughs> thought at some point they're going to kill themselves because they just don't know how to handle themselves. You know, so. Um, not only did they not know how to handle themselves, they went out into surf that was way too big for them. And I can't imagine, you know, what it would be like just to try to learn how to surf in waves that are way too big for you. You know, you don't even know how to paddle, and yet you're trying to, you know, go into a 10-foot-faced wave. You're going to kill yourself. But at least in this one with the, the waves that I saw, they're they're all those like, – they're very manageable. So – how are you kind of getting the – how are you teaching them how to paddle and how to enter into the wave and then, you know, how to, like, read the wave so that they know when it's time to stand up and all that? Are you doing yeah. that? Are you kind of coaching, are you coaching as well? Yeah. So, again, right now we're just testing. But when we're going to be open, we're going to have a whole arm of our uh, club and our park is going to be geared towards beginners or maybe, like, wounded warriors or people – that um, will benefit from, like you say, a controlled environment to learn how to surf. Now, we have a wave that we can dial up out the back that is a barreling beast of a, of a slab that really good surfers can have a hard time surfing. Um, really? But Yeah, yeah. Go, go, on, go to YouTube, and you can look up our Palm Springs Surf Club. You're going to see some amazing waves with really good pro guys that are just ripping it and, and getting barreled and doing aerials all in a swimming pool. It's, it's amazing what can happen in this pool. But we can also change the wave that we are even testing right now, which is kind of foreshadowing the future wave that we're going to have of a beginner wave. And that's the kind of beginner wave that we took out these high school kids who really don't surf so much, or these kids from Watts. And we call it Baby Queens after a, a, the, the Queens in, in Waikiki in Hawaii, where it's a soft, rolling little whitewater wave. And almost Almost anyone can approach it and get into it. And the way we, we, we teach them is by example. We're with them. We're literally in the water with them. We never let anyone out of our arm's reach. Uh, sometimes the smaller kids will ride on the front of a longer board while someone is riding on the back. Or we push them into the white water. Someone else catches them. We have uh, very experienced veteran surf guys, uh, uh, you know, been around the world between our friends, our, our, our group. Um, and we've got two pro guys, Shane Magnuson and Kalani Robb. You surf anything the world wants to throw at them. 
and and between our group we um we just take care of these people. We want them to have a good experience, to have the joy of riding water. You don't have to worry about like the shark or the riptide or the outside set or or some other thing. But you take that muscle memory and that joy to the ocean if you want to. But in the meantime, it can isolate the learning experience or the joy of riding the wave in a controlled environment. It's very powerful. Yeah. I've seen people's lives change just in our little pool. In this little pool right here, when we build our bigger pool with the outer wave and the inner wave on the inside, it's going to be an amazing thing. It's going to be an amazing thing. But I tell you, all these hardened, grizzled surf guys who've been around the world and they come surf this wave, you know what? At the end of the day, a smile is a smile. And these guys yeah. are, are full-on pro guys. You know, we've had we've had world champ Italo Ferreira. We've had uh, Felipe Toledo, uh, James O'Brien, uh, Rob Machado, Shane Dorian. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, ben Gravy. Um, so many talented surf guys come out and have – such a wonderful time here you know it's not the ocean but it doesn't have to be water is water and and that's for my book for my life to like now i i think if i had one sense that's what i would say you know water is water and and if you can live in a desert of mountains everyone needs water and so why not enjoy it because you know what there's mountains there's lakes there's rivers any form of water there's swimming pools you know we're 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 a species that needs water and if we appreciate water we appreciate life. That's our only chance. No water, no ocean, no hope. Kind of how I end my book. So, so I think those, with those very words. I, yeah, I, you know, I'm right there with you. So kind of on another technical level, when it comes to the, the way that you're creating your wave, how big of a wave if you decided you wanted to have professional surfers come out, you know, and it's going to be professional surfer day, how big of a wave can you make? Well, that's a function of the size of the pool and the machinery, and we're going to get a bigger pool. We're going to build a bigger pool. We're going to get more machinery. But I think to be conservative and in general terms, I would say that we're going to have a wave on the face that can maybe get up to like maybe eight feet. You know, I'd say like like nice. head high and maybe like overhead and maybe overhead and a yeah. half. You know, it's, you yeah. know, it's based on how, how how big you are. But but what's more, almost more important, as you probably know, is is the shape of the wave? Is it going to peel? Yeah. Is it going to have an air section? Is it going to barrel? You know, and, and and it has a big long shoulder. I mean, the what the the images that I saw had a very long shoulder to it, and it was it had a nice barrel to it. Exactly. I mean, to to get a barrel in a in a in a swimming pool for someone like who's been stripping, I try to be a purist my whole time. You know, I, like it's it's a head scratcher. But you know what? Who would have thought your phone is a camera? You know, or you know, there's so many things in the modern world now. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what's there's, the there's bottom you have? It's, 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 it's just a crazy, you know, interesting world now. And wave pools are going to be part of it. Uh, just another on a technical question. So what kind of bottom is the, uh, the uh, is this pool? Is it concrete? Is it shaped? Is it? deep and then does it have like a, a simulated sandbar what is anything like that no no it's going to be a concrete bottom um and right now we're just using the same pool that was in the wet and wild uh you know pool we did change uh-huh. the house with our machinery but our our future pool it will be concrete but it's going to have a, a contour bottom so the wave will come It'll form like a peak and then peel left and right, basically. So we are going to have a contoured bottom. So it's going to be, it's going to be a, a, a good, high-quality wave. 
um, natural or man-made, you know, and our, our whole approach is to uh, not have it be exclusive or like a country club. There's, there's, there's other models that have, you know, high-end homes or a club and then you get to surf the pool. We, we want to be open to the public and we, you know, we'll have our, our price points and you can rent it out for private sessions and stuff, but we want it to be accessible. The city of Palm Springs is hugely supportive of us. The chamber, the businesses, the schools, hotels, the restaurants, everyone down the line. Um, our property uh, neighbors are the Agua Calante Indian tribe. Who knows what kind of land use things we can maybe go into with them. But this wave, the fact that people are riding water, they're surfing, there's, that there is water moving. When water moves, humans move. That it, 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 the, the economy moves. The, the spirit moves. There's there's, there's change. There's, there's just something about moving water. It's like watching a fire. You can't take your eyes off it. And, and moving water is a magical thing. And it's, 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 it's you know, wave pools are not a crime. <laughs> and at one point, I almost, like, was thinking, oh, what's the big deal? And I, you know, I was, you know, it's, it's, I've had my own, like, little metamorphosis as well. Um, over time, seeing how this is going to bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. And not just not yeah. surf guys who can already surf. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, you know, so a smile is a smile, water is water. Yeah. How many people can you have out there in the out there in the pool at one time? Oh, I think it's going to be programmed, like, on a public session, like maybe, you know, 12 people an hour. So you actually yeah. would, you know, program. It's kind of like a, like a golf course where, okay, your tea time is at uh, this time, and you're going to be with these people. Um, but then there'll be the opportunity for corporate or private buyouts for parties or, or companies that want to come in, and they want to buy the pool for four hours, and then they have it, that type of thing. But uh, is it going to be just? The, does it, is there going to be just one wave, or are you going to have like kind of the outside sets as well? Yeah, well, they'll be, gonna like be, I said, they'll, 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 there's space going to be one wave out the back. And it'll have a set of, you know, maybe between, you know, four to eight waves, depending on the actual wave that's going to come out. Um, maybe up to ten waves in a set. I think I think it's going to be more like six to eight. But that energy, once it breaks on the outside and rolls to the inside, it will reform, and then it will break again on the inside in a manner that is going to be perfect for beginners or people that want to learn to or that want to, yeah. that want to pick up. So I'll have to for 10, 15 years. And, you know, actually, a, a, a when I first bought my surfboard, I went with a friend of mine, and then I I got lost in the surfing, and he had a you know far more productive life, and you know developed movies in Canada and stuff like that. And he actually saw my picture in the Chamber of Commerce magazine, and he got in touch with me, and and he's excited. He hasn't really surfed in years, you know, and he says, um, I'm looking forward to this because I want to get back into it. And 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 for anyone who lives between you know. Santa Monica and San Diego, they can drive two hours and come to our park. Um, and, and that's a pretty wide net of, of surfers. Plus, the Palm Springs International Airport is literally three minutes up the road. So, wow. so I think we're going to have a good reach of people that can come. Again, our geography here is absolutely amazing. The top of us getting this property and our technology, those three, that, that's, that's our trifecta right now for delivering something that really no one else can. Our technology is truly cutting edge. This is a real premier technology put out by Surflock and Tom Lechfeld and his group. You can look up Surflock L-O-C-H online. 
uh, Long Island's with the Palm Springs Surf Club. And, and what we're going to do here, I think, is really amazing. It's, it feels like a good extension and evolution of, of what I've done before with my public sector planning experience and my community yeah. stuff and consulting and communities. It's, it's somehow it's all coming together with my, with my partnership group. And uh, we're all excited. We all bring something different to the table. You know, we've got a couple um, people from different areas, and we're all, we've all come together. We're a really strong team, and uh, we're looking to finalize our funding and start construction, and and uh, you know, open uh, you know fall next year. Do you feel like you're in competition with Kelly Slater? No, no. In fact, Kelly. And, and uh, Kalani and Rob, they're, they're they're very good friends. You know, Kelly's pull up, Kelly's pull up in Lemoore uh, is an amazing wave, and it really showed the world like what can happen in a wave pool. It's different technology. All technologies have their pluses and minuses. We think there's a lot of pluses on ours. Um, you know, he's he's a, he's a good way up the road in Central California, but he has the, like the private model. It's not public. You can't just. I don't believe you can just go there unless you want to. Hey, I, I don't know if it's like fifty or sixty-five thousand dollars for a, uh, an exclusive rental of it. So we, we wow. kind of have a different business plan of, of you know, we're more like a, a golf course. Our, the, the, the closest example to us is the BSR Wave Pool in Waco, Texas, and that has kind of the look and feel more along the lines of what we're doing. And they are open to the public, and they're actually full, like a lot. They have like a waiting list. It's, it's it takes time to get on their calendar. So when people ask us about the business viability of what we're doing, we point to Waco. You fly into Austin and you drive two hours to Waco, and then, you know, you have your one or two days of surf that you arrange prior through their Internet. Here people are going to either fly directly into this airport and drive three minutes down the road, or you'll have a two-hour drive from, you know, Malibu to San Diego, and you can come to Palm Springs, which – is kind of an iconic tourist destination outside of the national parks and the theme parks and the beaches of California, Palm Springs. And, um, yeah, we're trying to pick up. We're, we're Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Bob Hope, and all those boys uh, left off. We're going to pick it up and take it to a different level with our whole little our little tour fantasy and bringing the joy of water, you know? Exciting. It's so exciting. So when does this open? Uh, I think we're looking to open, like, the end of summer of next year. Yeah, so you're and, still kind and, of uh, fantastic. Hey, yeah, so we no, have just a few more minutes. Okay, okay. I was going to say we have a few few more minutes left to go in the show. So, is there any kind of a last takeaway ideas that you'd like to share? And then also, why don't you go ahead and once you're done with that, why don't you go ahead and give us what your contact information is and the contact information for the Oceanside Surf Museum or the California Surf Museum and the Palm Springs Surf Club. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, you know, um, people have more similarities than differences. And the world needs our help. The world is a magical place, but you got to take care of it. You know, you want to save the world? Well, then you got to save the oceans. Uh, and it doesn't matter where you live. And you want to save the oceans, you may as well start with one patch of water at a time. And that, that's what I learned, and that's what we're able to do, you know, in Carlsbad. Um, it's hard to you stay healthy and happy at the same time, but it's possible. You've got to work at it. Um, and, 
you know, like with my book, I'm, I'm kind of more of the creative guy. I, I would love for my book to get out into like uh, oceanographic museums or, or aquariums or, or be a, a, a graduate level environmental policy reading thing. But I, I kind of don't know how to do that. I'm not good at marketing myself. If someone wants to help me with that or give me an idea or a lead, I would love to talk to someone about that part of it. I would like my book to be in the hands of like students who are trying to study you know the environment and, and and want to change the world and they need a good inspirational true story not a not a theoretical story a true story of, of what can happen from someone who had no idea that i would be involved in this and if you want to do something really important you got to find something that's bigger than yourself in your wallet and your pocketbook and, and who you touch how, how can you touch a greater part of the world so that that would be my my message the surf museum is uh, surfmuseum.org you can look up uh, palm spring surf club uh, online, and I believe we have a, a an email address on there, and uh, my personal email address would be Eric E R I C at Pacific Ocean Art A R T straight across dot com Pacific Ocean Art dot com, and uh, I also have another one for the Surf Club E dot Munoz at Palm Springs Surf Club dot com. So either of those two. So are you? Would, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Say that again. No, no, that's it. Yeah, e.munoz at palmspringsurfclub.com or Eric at Pacific Ocean Art. And, uh, yeah, if there's any comments, I really love, you know, hearing from people and taking input, you know, comical, give me a hard time, ideas, anything. I, I, I accept it all. I look forward to it. So it's human interaction and comedy and, and people getting along with each other, being inspired by nature. I mean, that that's what makes the world go around. And I, I think that's a big part of what you try and cover in your program. And I really honored that um, you invited me to talk so long about, about myself. It was a little, little weird talking about myself, but my, my book, my story, my things, what's in my head. And I'm, I'm really honored. And, I, and I, I really do appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. So it looks like that's going to conclude our show. And so Eric, I just really want to thank you for coming on. I think you were terrific and you had so much insight about invasive species and the surf club and the surf museum and your book and so I think you were a fantastic guest. So thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, also, I want to thank all of my listeners. I hope you enjoyed the show. I really appreciate your involvement and your willingness to listen to my guest and to me. So I'm going to ask you if you would please follow, subscribe, or like uh, us on Blog Talk Radio, YouTube, or my Facebook page, which is David Collis, um, Nightlife with David Collis. So I appreciate all that. I want to, without further ado, I want to say let's journey together. Good night and have a great tomorrow.